acknowledges and pays respect to the traditional owners and knowledge holders of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It is upon their ancestral land that Cranbrook School resides. Cranbrookians share in the gift of the pursuit of knowledge, and in doing so, we pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of this country, the land, waters, and sky. We pay respects to the elders past, present, and emerging, for they hold the memories, the traditions, the culture, and hopes of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Welcome to Perspectives, a conversation between Cranbrook Headmaster Nicola Sampson and Head of the Junior School, Michelle Marquette. Hello and welcome to Perspectives. I'm Michelle Marquette, Head of Cranbrook Junior School, and I'm talking to Nicola Sampson about childhood behaviour and learning and Cranbrook's vision for world-class education. Hello, Michelle. It's very good to be with you. We, as a school, have always had an ethos of the whole child uh, and we celebrate that whole child perspective. Uh, I know that that's something that's really important in the junior school and, uh, and it continues all the way through uh, with the students until year 12. For you, what does the Cranbrook spirit and ethos mean? First of all, I think we, we do centre upon our motto. We talk about this a lot, you and I, and uh, uh, the fact that Esse Quamvideri means that we are committed to the elevation of truth in every respect. So it's not just about putting aside play-acting or self-promotion. It's actually about a search for the best you. Mm. Uh, and the other thing that we need to bear in mind when discussing these issues is that... Uh, we're talking about the integrity of individuals, but we're also talking about the construction of a community. And it's always that tension between individuality and what is best for everybody mm. uh, that drives a place like ours. And I, I think we, um, I hope we, I know we, think that this is a, a dynamic equilibrium rather than a paradox. And if you treat it as a paradox, you surrender to the fact that we can never attain perfection. If you treat it as a dynamic equilibrium, you regard it as a sp springboard from which you can jump high. And uh, I don't know, that's how I feel about it. So it's really the difference between individuality and celebrating that and individualism, which promotes, I guess, the wants and needs of an individual above what's beneficial for a society. So our, I guess our school is trying to, um, to instill in in our students, the idea of, of knowing who they are, but at the same time knowing how they're going to contribute to the world and uh, create a, a better society as a result of that. That's exactly right. I think it's, it's, it's about self-knowledge, not self-centrality. Mm. And that is the sort of line we always w walk. Um, we love to see extraordinary gifts. We love to bring them out. We love to see uh, the less glamorous, more private journeys of self-improvement that give us the greatest joy as educators, the, mm. the things we can't talk about. Mm. Um, but we're also concerned, increasingly, I'm afraid, because of the times and because of the current political climate, on what is best for society, because I think we're at risk of losing some binding qualities that hitherto have been accepted as being essential. They now seem to be either negotiable or sellable. So in some ways our society does promote and celebrate the individual but perhaps sometimes at risk of what that means for the broader society and, and it's trying to get that tension, as you said, in balance. 
so that people can be themselves but also understand what that means for a broader group of people. So it's, um, it is a wonderful thing and something that I think is quite different to other places that I've been involved with um, over my, my teaching career. It's something that has attracted me to Cranbrook, um, that holistic idea of educating a human being and celebrating what it is to be fully human. I agree with you there, and I, th- I think also what refreshes me about Cranbrook is that we don't fall uh, victim to the celebrity culture, mm. uh, because all too often I think the presentation of how we develop as people uh, is seen through the world of entertainment, uh, and the press and and other media elevate personalities so quickly so that they can squash them in the next edition. Equally quickly, yeah. Um, <laughs> And these days, celebrity and fame are instantly available. Yeah, it is an instant pursuit. All of these wonderful shows that I never watch on television appear to be about you know, being famous before you're ready. Um, and what I hope we're doing is we're teaching young people the rigorous process of self-discovery, which is all about the unglamorous side of self-knowledge, building an understanding of yourself, rehearsing, practicing, the disciplines of a liberal education, uh, applying those to the pursuit of your own potential, but not in a celebrity-centred way, but because society is lifted when we lift together. Mm. Cranbrook's an IB continuum school, and for us that starts in preschool when our students are three years of age, and uh, it focuses on the development of a whole child, and it, it looks at them in terms of being an inquirer both in the classroom and in the world outside. Uh, we also follow, um, of course, Ness's New South Wales curriculum, um, and as we have to. And now you're a firm believer in the IB program. This isn't the only school where you've seen it um, in practice. Can you talk a little bit about why it is, why you think it is such a valuable approach um, uh, in education? Yes, it's complex uh, in some ways. Uh, first of all, I think the IB is about the only curriculum that was designed and built by educators. Usually, curricula have grown up over time, over decades, as a result of political imperatives or economic issues or or, uh, the the, the perceived needs of wider society. And there's never been a unifying form to national curricula. Uh, There hasn't been that need. It's been driven by short-term, discrete uh, requirements. We want people to be able to read the instructions to run uh, machinery and factories, for example. Whereas the IB coming into being in 1968, a time of great idealism, a time of great hope, a time of great optimism, actually has a coherent philosophy and it's based upon the sort of value system that our school is based upon. That's not a great surprise if you're talking about an educational delivery that was designed by educators, you expect them to have the sort of ideals that we hold on to. So we, we start with the IB knowing that its duty is to create citizens who are rounded, who are generous, who are knowledgeable, and who are capable of distinguishing the truth. Uh, and that's not a criticism of other curricula, but, but it's just not stated in other curricula. So we have this sort of celebration of coherence. And secondly, the IB coming into being as it did uh, in that time, recognised that most of the people it was educating would not stop their education with the IB, unlike the HSE, unlike the school certificate, when these things were seen as leavers certificates. Mm. But now, 
the vast majority of our leavers go on to university. They'll be learning throughout their lives, and the IB recognises that. It takes some tough calls. It, it means you have to stick with the language all the way through your schooling and, and stick with mathematics all the way through your schooling. But we take away, therefore, what it appears to be the mirage of choice. And I say it's a mirage because it cannot be right that in the final years of your schooling, you walk away from some of the most important disciplines and academic pursuits that uh, a human being can undertake. Because you're not finished. You're not finished. And what you're doing through the IB is to prepare people for the next stage. And we want them to flourish there, not just to get there, not just to give them a ticket or a score or entry to a course that they aspire to, but we want them to actually be at home there in every single way and to be able to dig deep and flourish and have learnt the joys of commitment. The IB has, a, I guess, a, an understanding that we need breadth for longer than perhaps some other systems um, in support or promote that, you know, as you said, they have to do a language, they have to um, still maintain mathematics, for example, which isn't necessarily the case in the high school certificate at this point in time. That idea of range... Why do you think, you've touched on this a little bit, but why is it so important that we have range in education all the way through schooling until, until you leave? Why, why not specialisation, which is, I guess, what you could argue about some other systems, education systems around the world, which narrow, continually narrow what you study as you get older? Yeah, I, I, there is an appeal of specialisation for some particular, particularly talented, particularly driven, particularly uh, oriented children. Absolutely. I think... I'm persuaded by experience that the IB can promote that sort of capacity also. That's a strong appeal of the HSC, that, that you can, uh, first of all, drop things that you really don't like or are not good at, and secondly, you can really concentrate your curriculum on uh, the areas that you love. Nothing wrong with that. Until you sort of step back and say, well, what is school for? Is it a finished process? Mm. I don't think it is. I mean, I, I think if we thought we could finish people by schooling, we or go home tomorrow. In fact, we wouldn't be necessary. I think a recognition that, you know, as we increasingly understand, the brain is still developing and growing after you leave school. You, you, you need to be able to be flexible, versatile, intellectually capable, uh, but also agile. All of those things, they really spring from breadth. Breadth doesn't deny depth. In fact, I think breadth can promote depth if you're very careful as a school, as an educational institution, and I think we see that. Um, but uh, our busiest people are pe pe students are our best students. Our broadest students are our most capable students in many, many ways. Um, and in terms of being prepared for a university sector, which has changed out of all recognition since you and I uh, were um, leaving school, you do need to be an independent learner. You do need to be curious. You do need to be an inquirer. And you certainly, with the current political climate, need to be able to distinguish between fake news and truth. I think, too, that uh, some of our best problem solvers are people that have breadth of education, um, that actually we take potential solutions for things from other areas, not necessarily the area of study itself. And if you have no counterbalance to the thing that you're passionate about, um, known other knowledge, sometimes I think it limits your capacity to solve the problems within that area. So I think it's a really good thing for our students to understand that they need balance in their 
in their life and in their learning all the way through. In fact, that's something, a lesson for life, not just for, for schooling. Oh, I think that's absolutely mm. right. And I think we've always got to be mindful that schools are constructed around conformity. And actually, society needs non-conformity as well. Mm. Uh, and the best way to, for schools to, to, to square that circle is to be as broad as you can be. And let's, let's be broad within the curriculum as we seek to be broad beyond it. And that's, again, part of the genius of the school, uh, that we have this breadth of opportunity, all of which interlinks. Because we come back to the, the definition of integrity. Um, integrity does mean truth, but I like to think of it in semi-mathematical terms as well. And I'll probably be picked up by a mathematician here now because uh, I don't claim to be a strong one. But, but I- integers are whole. Yes. And integrity means wholeness as well. So um, breadth breeds that wholeness. It also gives you an appreciation, even of things you find difficult. Uh, if I'd been forced to continue with mathematics, I'd be a better person. I know it. It would have been painful and ugly to watch, um, but I think I'd have emerged uh, uh, in a more gifted and talented way. Possibly, yes. <laughs> I don't know. You've said in the past that the technological revolution has enabled us to to sustain academic progression throughout the challenges imposed by isolation during, I I guess, COVID times. But there are many downfalls to technology. Um, How do we get that balance right? How do we strike a happy balance um, between what it gives us and also how it can be so damaging? Uh, And if you had a child in primary school at this point in time... How would you approach the use of technology for those that age group of students? Well, I'm conscious of the fact that, first of all, I'm a dinosaur. I know you're, you're not at all. <laughs> but, uh, and, and there is a temptation to be Luddite about all of this stuff. But let's first of all remember the joys of technology, which are remarkable, that uh, they've liberated us from having to search through out-of-date encyclopedias and... Uh, uh, to, to trawl for information in the most inefficient way. Um, and they demonstrate the accessibility of the beauty of creation and the world um, on an instant basis. It's just the most remarkable set of opportunities. But as with any human endeavour, there's a dark side, and we're aware of that because we see the harm that it does. Um, and I think what the uh, pandemic taught society was... that it must not keep treating schools as a default option. Um, We are there as the only institution left standing in many ways, and we are tasked with an increasing burden and and duty of passing on very important messages. Um, So the responsibility of schools has grown over COVID, but the key takeaway was, my goodness, young people missed their teachers. They missed each other. They missed real, genuine conversation. They missed connection. Uh, and as far as I'm concerned, the pandemic killed the idea of the de-schooled society. Uh, that what we, we recognise that we need young people to be with each other and to be guided by gifted, talented, principled, thoughtful, kind adults. Um, that used to be available to young people beyond schools as well in, in terms of voluntary societies, clubs, uh, sporting arenas and many other things. That, those opportunities have narrowed. So schools are left with this business of promoting a conversation between generations 
Um, and great teachers are skilled conversationalists. That means listening as well as talking. And young people, most of all, need to be recognized for who they can be, who they are. They need to be loved. They need to be nurtured. And great schools can do all of those things. So that's a long-winded answer to your question. But um, uh, I think uh, uh, the access of, to technology is a fabulous, fabulous uh, advance. But it does encourage superficial connection rather than deep research. You need both. Both are exhilarating if you, if you treat them right. Um, superficial connection is, is instantly refreshing and wonderful and exhilarating. The, the capacity to dive deep takes longer to learn, but I think the rewards are even stronger and richer in due course. And if you can have both, my goodness me, that would be impressive. So you see, I, and I would agree that technology is really more a tool that we use to help facilitate learning or um, or the seeking of knowledge and the acquisition of it. it. It serves a purpose, but it isn't the ultimate end of what we're doing as educators. It's it's a way to get to help us get there, sometimes far more efficiently than we could do otherwise. Um, but I guess because it is so pervasive in our society with young children in particular who come to school um, and touch a screen at school and want to swipe it with their finger because that is their experience of screens at home. They, their experience of, of those things is so overwhelming, we almost have to try and help separate them from it a little bit and give them face-to-face interaction. Um, there is still so much research on um, its capacity to learn emotion um, through it is very minor. And so I guess that plays in a little bit to what you were saying about why we see um, the COVID experience of isolation and trying to teach online, why it was not perhaps as successful as we would like or, or perhaps had thought it would be, that we all thought that education was going to move entirely that way and people may, maybe become redundant. But um, in actual fact, there is much about being human that you can only learn from another human and human interaction in as well. It's It's not possible for you to learn some things via a screen in fact it creates a barrier to that learning um, that we don't we didn't I guess recognize previously and I can remember going to a very early talk on um, technology and education when this revolution was first kicking off and one university researcher said whenever you put a young person in front of a screen it's interesting you get an almost automatic suspension of morality Everything appears to be a game. Everything appears to be swipeable. Everything appears to be uh, there to entertain you. And it's quite hard to put a moral perspective on all of that. Mm. Um, and I think if you go back to um, why schools are, why we were founded, what, what set us up, William of Wickham in the 14th century um, gave us his uh, motto for Winchester College and New College Oxford, the same motto, which was manners maketh man. Scott Davis uses it as the motto for uh, for um, Strickland House uh, at Cranbrook. But it's interesting. So they're, they're in setting up in an institution or two institutions that were to do with the pursuit of knowledge. He said and deliberately thought that his chief role was to build empathy, the connection between individuals, mm-hmm the connection between scholars, um, the connection between members of a community. Um, and you know, empathy is in decline. We, we know it. 
you just have to watch what happens politically to see that. Um, and it's our job to make sure that empathy is restored to its highest priority. Uh, it ought to be our highest priority because if we can't construct a community, however brilliant the minds we stretch and raise and, and deepen, uh, they'll function selfishly. And that's not really a great message for ours for future societies to think that that's where we could potentially be heading. So everything we do at our school, I guess, is to counterbalance that tendency that we have as humans. Um, it's why the whole child is so important. It's why human interaction with their teachers and why we value the importance of excellence in teaching so highly um, in seeking and, and finding the teachers that can connect in that way because it is through that connection that our, our students really do thrive. Absolutely. And I think another loss in the pandemic was the, 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 the loss of our opportunity to send moral messages out. Mm. So if you think about uh, the junior school and the co-mission, you know, mm. expect and model respect, I mean, that is empathy. Mm. That is empathy defined and crystallised in a very simple, accessible phrase. And the boys in the junior school know it. They know it because you say it yeah. and you preach it mm. and you live it. Um, but if uh, you're um, atomized into people studying at home, it's so much harder to give those messages. And there's something primal about receiving a message as a community in person, in assemblies, in classes, in other conversations. So that's yet another loss. And I think it's a loss that we're just beginning to feel the effects of in a broader sense. So uh, we at Cranbrook have the opportunity, which we accept, to disseminate these key messages. And I think, although sometimes I, I, I bore myself, you'd never bore anybody, but I bore <laughs> myself with, with, with repeating these messages, actually repetition of key moral messages is crucial. You have, you've worked in school management for a very long time. You started as a teacher... What did you love about teaching? Why did you become a teacher? I have heard this story before, but I love it, so I'm going to make you tell it. <laughs> well, look, uh, I had a couple of jobs before uh, before I became a teacher, uh, one of which was to be one of Her Majesty's Inspectors of Taxes, which uh, was a real preparation for the universal love given to headmasters. Um, but so I, I did I did some other things uh, and was deeply unhappy. Uh, and uh, then there was a temporary job teaching literature was advertised late in the summer, and I applied for and got it. Uh, and I can remember walking into my first class and, and, and just loving the conversation. And at the end of the lesson, I thought, you get paid for this? Mm -hmm. um, this is the most extraordinary thing. You're working with hope. You're working with young people who are hungry to know. Uh, they'll test you a little bit. Of course they will. Nothing's par paradise, but... Um, uh, you're working, in my case, with books and sport and physical activity and uh, co this construction of a community life that I hadn't benefited from at school myself. So for me, it just it seemed a remarkably fitting and wonderful opportunity. Um, and I hope I, I mean, as as life has gone on, uh, I've moved away from the classroom and I miss it. Mm. Um, uh, but the joy of con working to encourage an institution which believes in that joy of, or that spark that we can share, that creation of light, that, that sense of a buzz around the school, 
That is wonderful. And I think we really have it at the minute, that we're in good shape and form and heart. And you can see that young people want to be with us. I can assure you that wasn't the case at the school I went to. Uh, as soon as the final bell sounded, we were off. But here, people choose to stay. They choose to be with each other. They want to look you in the eye. They want to be known. They want to know you. And, and, and that is um, a remarkable thing. Um, of course, schools can get out of kilter. Of course, there are risks and, 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 and problems. And of course, sometimes we get things wrong. Of course we do, because we're essentially humane. But the amount of joy and opti optimism that is around is extraordinary. And the amount of support we attract and uh, benefit from, from our wider community is also extraordinary. So... Sorry, that's a very long answer to your question again. <laughs> uh, I really relate to the um, to the beginning bit um, about sort of not believing that someone paid you to do this. For many years and as a young teacher, I could not believe that, so that someone paid you to do that job. Yeah. It was just such a joy to do it. Yeah. Um, and you're right, it's all about the students. It's all about the way they do just kind of... I don't know, they, they, they come to love learning and it is a privilege to be able to share that experience with them. It's a real privilege and it is a vocation. I would say I, I believe that teachers need to be rewarded. I mean, I don't want to be quoted no, no, now as saying know. that <laughs> teachers don't need <laughs> to be paid. Uh, but uh, but uh, I think that needs to be seen in the context of an, uh, a renewed acceptance of the centrality and value of teachers and their work. Um, uh, again, throughout the course of my career, I've seen teaching downgraded as a profession, um, treated as a, a sort of uh, political football, uh, loaded up with responsibilities that were never in place when I began the work. Um, and uh, our teachers work hard and under pressure uh, for all sorts of reasons. Part, some, of the, some of the reasons are a loss of empathy from some families towards teachers, for example. And I've seen people placed under terrible pressure when civility and courtesy could have halved the problem and solved it very, very quickly. So we've got to be aware, too, that our teachers are our best and highest resource. They do have this wonderful job, and I hope they still get that joy that we shared uh, when we began uh, working. Um, but they do need to be rewarded. They need to, do need to be sustained. They do need to be recognised. They, too, need to be known for what they do. Mm. Yes, absolutely. Were there any teachers in your youth that influenced you? Well, there were. Oh, my goodness. Um, yes, there were. Uh, I was educated by that magnificent cohort of women um, after, who, who qualified to teach after the First World War when um, they were allowed into the profession. profession yeah. uh, in those days, of course, if you married, you had to leave the profession. Uh, and these, uh, these ladies chose not to be married and they dedicated themselves to um, education. And I can recall uh, how wonderful they were. And there was a turning point in my career as a student. Uh, we had a rule. When, when I was six, there was a rule in the class that if you hadn't finished a reader by the end of term, you had to go back and start it again at the beginning of the next term. Um, and I can remember this Miss Mudge called me up on the last day of term to her desk and made me read half of this book to her so that I could get to the next stage and that that I think was the turning point of my education because I was allowed to move on in front of everybody else all of this talk about 
you know, being limited by age didn't apply then. It, for great teachers... It shouldn't uh, apply now. It shouldn't apply now. Great teachers know how to, uh, how to overcome it and they know how to spot the, the time and occasion when a young person needs inspiration and needs particular support. I got it from her then and I really do think that changed everything. That changed absolutely everything thereafter. In an article in EQV, uh, you mentioned the Irish playwright Louis McNeese and his phrase, the integrity of difference. Um, so making space for recognition and endorsement of individuality. We've talked on this a little bit, but do you want to add anything else to, to what we said about individuality and why that phrase in particular? You, you use it often. I do, I do. I've got a limited vocabulary. But, uh, um, yeah, you, you come back to McNeese, uh, who is the most extraordinary poet, and I, I recommend that people go and read him again. Uh, but he uses words with a musicality and an intent that sum up what is great about living and great about the work we do. Uh, in his poem Snow, he writes, I peel and portion of tangerine and spit the pips and feel the drunkenness of things being various. Pretty good, mm. pretty good. And that sums up what it is to admit the integrity of differences. Because if you open yourself to seeing the world anew, and a great poet can always teach you to see things again from a different angle through using words with economy and style and, and flair, um, then um, yeah, the world becomes a sequence of opportunities, not something to be mined or uh, degraded or used for your own fulfilment. Uh, it becomes more of a virtuous circle where enjoyment of what you're doing builds a sense of personal confidence which can then transfer into the building of community, I think. So much of your ethos, and I know that when you come and speak to families that potentially might be coming to our school, at junior school, you focus a lot on, our, on how a Cranbrook education will help our boys as they leave school. It's, it's very much about life outside of school, both while they're at school but also when they go. So um, how do you elevate them beyond the everyday noise of school? and co-curricular activities to inspire them to become global citizens? Well, that's a, a lovely little question. Um, uh, well, first of all, I mean, let's, let's just use the symbolism of, of architecture. At the junior school, you've got a learning village. You know, it is modelled on the construction of community, and that's what people build by osmosis when they're going through the junior school. It's a lovely celebration of the marriage of architecture and education. At the senior school now, uh, we have put our new chapel at our highest point. It is our peak. Um, we're not an over-religious school. We're not um, overly committed to, to any particular dogma. We believe in the shared values of the Judeo-Christian heritage. But what we're saying by the... the articulation of that building is you know, here is an opportunity to think of about the world beyond the prison of selfhood here is a chance to look at interconnection here is a chance to celebrate place as a starting point not as somewhere to be smug about or to be materialistically um, enclosed about um, so in all that we do and in all of the central community messaging that we send there must be reference to the values of interconnection and the, the celebration of community. Uh, so we always look to really analyse individual performance and to 
note achievements. But that's always got to be in the context of we're in this together. This is us. We're not, uh, nor are we um, detached from wider society. We're not, as some people would have us be, a, a citadel of close privilege. We are feeding into society, reflecting and building our local community and thinking too about the impact that this generation can have on the world, a world which will face in their lifetimes challenges that we have constructed for them that are daunting, but they're going to need to be optimistic, strong, and then going to need to be together to work these things through. I hope we send those messages. I guess earlier you were talking about the idea of the whole child and how important that is. Really, education has to be about more than just book learning or subject learning. It is, and teachers, whether they mean to or not, do teach children what life is about. And that ultimately is life beyond the school gate. So in many senses, we have to help our children, no matter what age, to always be looking beyond uh, and that's one of the great things about the IB, um, you know, programs. They do have that outward-looking perspective that we help to the boys to develop over time and our girls when they're very young in, in preschool. But it is an outward-looking approach to education rather than an inward-looking one. That's one of its greatest strengths, I think. Um, I, I think that's so. And I think you know, this year we have together as a, an executive team uh, analysed what we do and decided that we will now seek to elevate service education. And that's another manifestation of this, I think. All too often um, we can mistake uh, um, glamour for service and service for glamour. Uh, and we can send trips to broaden the mind. We do need a firmer anchorage in our own society and we need a, a better and deeper understanding of our own city and the injustices that it Exist, contains. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I, we've been having very interesting conversations about how we can elevate that. But let's just point out that service is also a mandated part of the International Baccalaureate. And uh, that that's another part of its fitness for us. Uh, and can I make, just make one last point, or one more point, perhaps, uh, uh, about the IB? Uh, and that is that we're not denigrating the HSC by adopting the IB. But we are saying that our... HSC candidates will have benefited from, in many cases, the PYP, the Primary Years Programme, and in most cases, the Middle Years Programme. And I think what we're seeing is the effect of the IB in lower years on HSC performance and results. So I hope this is that classic cliche, a win-win, mm. um, that, that uh, we, we have the choice of the Diploma Programme in Years 11 and 12, but we understand and value the HSC uh, as still a very strong pathway. We're fortunate we have both options yes. to explore. Thank you for listening to Perspectives. The original music was created by Alex Posniak and the acknowledgement of country was read by Finn Whiteman. <laughs>